Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verse 33. We'll be looking at that in just a moment. And when you came in last week, if you were with us in service, you received a card uh, that was presented to you that gave Easter service times. Uh, you know that historically, uh, churches swell with people at Easter time, and we're very excited for that, to be able to preach the truth of Christ. And uh, those cards are available at our Welcome Center. When you walk out the doors into the uh, main lobby, it'll be centralized for you, and you can go pick up one of those if you didn't get one last week. We just want to remind you, there's a slight change that will affect most of you that come to first service. Our first service time is going to move from 8.30 to 8.15 on Easter Sunday. And at our 8.15 and 9.45 services, we'll have a simulcast out at the Student Center. So if you come in that particular Sunday, in fact, we would encourage you, uh, if you come to first or second hour, that you might choose to make a sacrifice and go over to the SMC. Not that it's a big sacrifice, but you'd give up your chair, which is customized to your body. And I know that that would be quite an expense. But there's good chairs over there too. But if you want to create space in either one of those services, we would encourage our homegrown people that call this Christ Church their home that you might attend the SMC service so that our visitors could sit together um, with those that they've come with. Please invite someone to come. I always say when it comes to Easter, and I don't do this very often, but I think on Easter it's appropriate, invite someone you love to come hear the message of the power of Jesus. It's one of the best gifts you can give them. If you care about them and they're unchurched, or you care about them and they're not churched currently, invite them to come with you and worship Christ that Sunday, and let's see what the power of God might do. If you need that information, it's out at the Welcome Center, and we hope that you'll stop by and pick that up. We are in uh, week 10 of our Relentless Pursuit series through the Gospel of Mark. And let me tell you what we've learned so far. If I can back the tape up and review, let's do this quickly. We've learned that his commission came from God, as spoken by God at his baptism. We learned about his authority, his plan, why he has the right to forgive sins, We've learned about his power over all things that cause us fear, who, who he is, what his name reveals, his glory, his power, and his strength. And today I want to bring up a lesson to you that he taught his disciples over and over, and they didn't quite pick up, and it's really important that we do as well. We're heading into the final week of his life, and Jesus is preaching to them about something very important. I want to back up to Mark chapter 9, even though we're going to spend a majority of our time in Mark 10 today. In Mark chapter 9, verse 33... It says, they came to Capernaum. When, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because of the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and he said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. This is the first time this is mentioned they've had those conversations. In our home, I am the tough parent and my wife is the loving parent. Okay, my boys look at me and I'm the one most apt to say no or to ask why and Heather's the one who loves them and she's a pretty easy touch. She's a good mom. And every now and then I'll see Braden whispering in his mom's ear and I'll say, what did you just ask her? Nothing. And I know what he's asked her for. New Legos, a new toy, something that he knows I won't give him. And I'll say to his mother, Heather, what did he just ask you for? She goes, it's between us. (laughs) So I know that they both are betraying me desperately. When Jesus looked at his disciples that day, and he said to them, what are you talking about? Notice what Mark recorded. They didn't want to answer him. Did nothing, nothing. It's, it's not important. It's not a big deal. 
It's a huge deal. Because three times in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to hear this discussion take place. And all three times they miss the point. We can't miss the point thousands of years later. We can't. And if we do, we're going to be in the same predicament they were. Let's jump ahead now from where we're going to be today. And I just want to show you on the screen, Luke chapter 22. On the night Jesus was betrayed, I want you to see if you've heard maybe this discussion before. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be considered to be the greatest. Jesus said, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now it's just a week before that moment will take place. So the third time in this walk with Christ, we come upon a moment where the question of who the greatest is being asked, and they're missing the one that the greatest is in their presence. Mark chapter 10, verse 35, and this is where we'll be this morning. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want to ask you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus is trying to teach to them the difference between pride and humility. I want you to know that pride is the thing that all sin comes from. Pride is the choice that all of us have deep down inside of us. And we're born with a sense of pride. We, we want to be received. We want to be acknowledged. We believe that we're offering something. It may not be as many as others, but we all offer something. And pride is the core in which all of our sins is birthed. Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 21.4. A proud heart is sin. Romans 1, 28-30, excerpts. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They became filled with every kind of wickedness, arrogant and boastful. It won't appear on the screen, but 1 Timothy 3 tells me pride comes from the devil. 1 John 2, pride is a characteristic of the evil in the world. 1 Timothy 6, pride is a mark of false teachers. James 4, 6, pride alienates one from God because God resists the proud. Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom, and humility comes before honor. I appreciate Jesus' patience, and I don't say that with a wave of the hand. That's important. Jesus' patience is demonstrated by three times he had to have this same conversation. I can be patient with one conversation, but by the second, I'm irritated, and by the third, I am in charge. Anybody else like that? If you had to tell someone three times not to do the same thing or warn them that this will hurt, by the third time they do it and they hurt themselves, isn't there a sense of satisfaction that you were right? Jesus is unlike that. 
Jesus has three conversations, and every time he's gentle, but he's direct. You see, these disciples, I want you to pay attention to this next line, okay? These disciples love Jesus, right? Talk back to me. You know they love Jesus. They know he's true, right? They believe in him and his kingdom, right? The Holy Spirit has been on them, right? But they still struggle with pride. So before you say, I'm not a person that struggles with pride, by saying that, you've just realized you do. We all have the ability to make ourselves the point of every story, in every spotlight, in every condition. These are common men. And the notion that they could be elevated for the very first time from common fishermen to something substantial in the new kingdom of God, every one of us would want that. So what they wanted was a natural response, but it wasn't beneficial. They knew Jesus would be glorified. Their theology was correct. They knew he was going to build his kingdom. It had already started. They knew he was going to place himself on the throne. And kings in their day would put their most reliable colleagues to the right and left. So James and John said, Jesus, would you do us a favor? Would you put us there? You see, they loved when he talked about his glory, but they dismissed him when he talked about his suffering. In Mark chapter 8, he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. In chapter 9, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and what, church? And die. In chapter 10, he's going to be delivered, condemned to death, handed over to Jewish leaders, and die. They wouldn't listen to that, but they sure loved the thought that one day he's going to be in charge. And if he's in charge, maybe we will be. They should have known their Old Testament is full of humility, not pride. A man like Abraham saying, me? Moses saying, me? Gideon saying, me? Joshua saying, me? It wasn't, pick me, pick me, pick me. They were like, you pick me? Humility. Not a humility that's fake. Not when someone comes up to you and pays you a compliment and you go, oh, no, it wasn't that awesome. No, it's saying, oh, you want me to do this? I'll try, but I don't know if it'll be good. I don't know if it'll be great. I'll just give you my best. See, there's nothing wrong with knowing you can do something, but knowing that the only way you can do it, that it has any impact, is when God is with you in it. It's the difference between pride and humility. So I want to show you how the world views greatness and how God views greatness. It'd be really simple, just taking these 11 verses. First of all, finding greatness in our world, it reveals selfish ambition. I read a lot of biographies. I love people's stories. I love their successes and their failures. And I found something reoccurring. If you're noticed as great in this world, you trampled on people to get there. You took advantage of others, and it's often been credited as riches or fame. You needed to do what you needed to do because you had a desire. Selfish ambition. In verse 35, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want Jesus to be a genie? We rub his belly and he gives us three wishes. Every one of us deep down inside think that would be awesome. In fact, if I told you right now, don't even think about the three things that you would ask of him. You've already started. Some of us are like, oh, no, I'm dealing with that right away. So we've often wondered what it would be like to be God. Humility is realizing we're never going to be. And Jesus is. James and John were in the inner circle. They'd seen the transfiguration. They had been given opportunities with Christ. They had status with him. What we don't record here, which Matthew does, is that their mother was with them. And you may think, oh, that's, that's pretty wishy-washy or that's pretty weak. No, no. Their mother was Jesus' aunt. 
they played the family card. You're going to take care of family, right? I mean, we're family, right? So when you get, become a king, family gets to be in the, in the kingdom, right? And the mother comes, and they ask Jesus to do this. And Jesus asks a very important question, and there's a key word in it. He says, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't say, what do you want me to do for the world? What do you want me to do for the broken and the lost and the hurting and those suffering injustice? He says, James and John, what do, we, what do you want me to do for you? And it's very, very revealing, insightful. And they ask selfishly, would you give us a special place over and above everyone else? Selfish ambition. The second thing about being great in our world is it reveals arrogant overconfidence. Not only is it ambitious, but it's arrogant. They believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and they believed that his kingdom was coming, which is excellent theology. But Jesus says, do you know what you just asked me for? Remember, three times he's told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And they dismissed that as, no, you won't. I'll stop that. We're not going to let that happen. Now he says, I'm going to build my kingdom. And they say, we want to be a part of your kingdom. And what they don't realize is, you have to suffer to be a part of God's kingdom. And he says, you don't know what you just asked me for. But because of their arrogance, he says, can you drink of the cup I'm going to drink? I'd like you to write down, if you're taking notes this morning, Isaiah chapter 31. And I would encourage every one of us, before the day ends, to go home or to go to a nice, beautiful, quiet spot outside, open your Bible and read the 31st chapter of Isaiah. Because when Jesus said, will you drink of the cup I drink, he's talking about the cup of fury of God's wrath on sin that he will take a full gulp of on the night he's betrayed. So he says, can you drink of the cup that I drink of? And they said, we can. <laughs> they outpunted their coverage. They uh, outpromised their abilities. They looked at him and said, hey, whatever it takes to receive your glory, we'll do whatever it takes to get what we want. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're going to drink of the cup. Which is interesting because let's take a little pop quiz here. Who was the first disciple to die for the cause of Christ? James. And who was the last disciple to die for the cause of Christ? John. They drank the cup. They were immersed in everything he was immersed in. So Jesus knew by the power of the Holy Spirit that they would do this, but they didn't realize it would come by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by their own desire to be famous and powerful and strong and dominant. They said that we're able, but Jesus is gentle. Verse 39, we can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Remember, when Jesus came as a suffering servant, he came as a servant of his father. And so he says to them, I am going to submit myself all the way through this to God's desires, and God will grant to those who have drank from the cup and been immersed in what I've immersed in. He will grant them those places. Jesus said, I'm not here to grant these spots. And see, here's the beautiful part of this. I don't know if you picked that up. Jesus said, I'm not about to tell any one person they're more important than anybody else. I'm here to tell everybody you're the most important thing God ever did. Isn't that good news, church? 
In a world where if you're not somebody, you're a nobody. In the kingdom of heaven, you are a somebody. Your name is written on the palm of his hand. And he says, I'm not here to differentiate who's great or who's not. I'm here to love all of you into my kingdom. And we'll let God separate the wheat and the tares when the day comes. It's a beautiful hope. Third thing that power in this world is, it's defined by ugly competitiveness. This is probably the easiest to see. It's found in verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. I love the word indignant. It's a controlled mad. It's a superior mad. It's that moment when you look down and go, I would never do that. How could you have done that? Well, what were they ticked about? That James and John beat them to it? That James and John asked for something knowing that if they got it, I wouldn't? It's very revealing, isn't it? There was a competitiveness amongst the disciples. Judas was hoarding the money and stealing money from Christ because Jesus wasn't doing enough for Judas' approval. James and John were saying to Jesus, you haven't identified us as special above everybody else and we want that. The other disciples were like, wait a second, James and John and Peter get all this time with Jesus that we don't. That's not what? Fair. But boy, I remember using that word a lot as a kid. And I remember my father correcting me really quick. I never intend to be fair. My dad's like, we'll do what we decide to do for all of you, and it doesn't have to be fair. Steve gets to stay up later than me. It's not fair. Yeah, go to bed. Pretty simple solution. The disciples were indignant. It still happens today, though, doesn't it? Well, our church is better than that church, or our preacher is better than that preacher, or that church is it's larger than us, and what are they doing? And it's, it, we're, what, We need to stop. Our competition is not another church. It's not another group of believers. Our competition is the strip clubs and the bars that are stealing people's souls. I'm not in competition with any other Christians. I'm in competition with Satan to win back the hearts of people to the goodness of God. How disappointed was Jesus this day with a group of men who had spent three years with him and could not remember that greatness is not defined by power. So what is it defined by? How do we find our greatness in his kingdom? Verse 42. Jesus called them together. Oh, I have to preach this. What does Jesus do when we fraction and go into our own little self-interest? He calls us together, right? That juice and bread you took today was not yours. It's ours. Did you get that? It's not our little holy, I'm horrible moment. It's we're all broken. And no matter if we had a great week or a horrible week, when you and I held that bread today, it's the great common denominator. We all need it. We all have to have it. That body and blood makes us all equal. He calls those that are broken apart together. And he said, You know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, how did you pick up this thought that greatness in the kingdom is position? Jesus never demonstrated that. But he said, it's not to be with you. In John 18, 36, he would tell the disciples that night of his betrayal, my kingdom is not of this world. 
So don't copy the Romans, don't copy the Herodians, don't look at it as power and control and veto and all of these things you get to do when you're in charge. He said, that's not my kingdom. But understand this, Jesus is not condemned being influential. Jesus not, does not condemn using what he's given you to make a difference. But when you're making a difference for the benefit of others, over and above the benefit of yourself, you're acting Christ-like. When you're using your authority and power and opportunities to better yourself, and then maybe sometime down the line benefit somebody else that's not of his kingdom. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Paul says, I have ambition. He's unashamed of it. My ambition is to make sure Jesus gets what Jesus wants in every circumstance. Paul said, I've fought the fight. I've run the race. I've completed the course set out before me. That's ambitious. That's powerful. That's influential. He says, imitate Christ or imitate me as I what? Imitate Christ. That's influential. That's using the opportunities to promote something that's not about the right or left hand. It's not about throne and position. It's about opportunity. So Jesus said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, don't worry about yourself. Serve others. There are six words in the New Testament for servant. You've probably heard this. You've been in the church for any period of time, you've heard this. We've talked about it in the last six years. The two primary words for servants gives us a picture. It's a house servant. It's someone who takes care of a master's wishes. And the second one I think is fascinating. It's an under rower in an old galley boat. It's someone who's in the bottom of the boat in the stinky, wet, humid environment who's pulling an oar to move the ship down the, down the lane. That's the image of servant Jesus is talking about. He says, grab an oar and help us all get there together. Don't stand on top shouting orders. So he said, if you want to spend your life well, serve. Serve God like Jesus was. Serve others like Jesus was. Invite people into the kingdom like Jesus was. So what does it look like to serve? Well, let's take what, what isn't service in the kingdom and reverse it. Jesus lived out a, selfish, or a selfless ambition, not a selfish one. He was selfless his entire time. I'd like to direct you to Philippians chapter 2. Very common passage. It just keeps coming up every time I preach Christ. It, it just it always draws me to this text. In Philippians 2, Paul said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, pride. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's not about what I get. It's not about what's in store for me. Heaven is not about my reward. Heaven is about the opportunity to be with the one I love, who's going to offer me graciously to come. So he was selfless. Secondly, Jesus lived out an absolute sacrifice for others rather than a spirit of competitiveness. Jesus gave up everything so we would win and he would lose. Not... I'm going to make sure I get mine, and then if there's enough, I'll give you yours. Verses 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, even death on a cross. There are thousands of buildings 
uh, state universities, state capitals. There's buildings all over the world named for people, monuments named for people. And most of them, according to my research, most of them are given to the benefactors who provided the money for the buildings. You can go on any major university campus and there's a building mentioned in the name of someone who probably gave a large amount of money to that university. I'm not disparaging that. Their generosity is appreciated and it's helping people down the line. But there are some that stand out for me more than others. There's a bridge that crosses the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. It's known as the Arlen D. Williams Bridge. And I'm venturing that most of us, and I didn't know until I did my research, most of us wouldn't know who Arlen D. Williams was, but I think we should. It was January 1982. An Air Florida flight, Flight 90, was leaving Washington uh, International Airport on a cold, icy day. And just as it left the airport, the ice must have been thicker on the wings than they imagined. And it hit the 14th Street Bridge and went into the icy river. When the rescue helicopters arrived, the plane had broken into sections. And the only section that was above the water and the only survivors from that plane were in the tail section. And they were holding on to that sinking section. And one man, unknown to many that day, was a man named Arlen D. Williams. He was the most visible And when the rescue helicopter dropped the ring buoy to him to lift him to the plane, he handed it to a female passenger. And they lifted her up and they dropped the buoy again down to him for him to come up. And instead he handed it to an elderly gentleman and lifted him to the plane. He did this a third time, a fourth time, and a fifth time. And by the time they got the fifth man in the plane, the the helicopter operator said they lowered the ring for the sixth time to bring up Arlen Williams and he was no longer there, nor was the tail section of the plane. He had drowned, handing his survival to five different people. And those five people lived because he chose to give, listen to me carefully, he chose to give his security, his salvation to somebody else. This is the story Paul tells us in Philippians 2. If anybody had the right to be competitive and focused on themselves, the perfect man should have but chose not to. And every time he was offered salvation from his condition, he handed that to you and I, and he said, you go to safety. And he died doing it. So if you're ever in Washington, D.C., and one day I hope to go there, I want to go walk across the Arlen D. Williams Bridge. Because that's a story that should be remembered. That's a monument that should stand to a person who chose to give life rather than to make their life safer, easier, better. The last thing we learn is that he lived out of complete confidence in God's plan, rather than an arrogant overconfidence. He chose to trust God the entire way. Remember, it was in the garden that Jesus would say, is there any way this cup could pass from me? Do you remember that line? The cup of fury? He said to James and John, you'll drink the cup, and oh, I'm going to drink the cup, and it's going to be bitter, and it's going to be hard. And he drank. Paul wrote, Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What will make God pleased this morning? The work of Jesus and a group of people who get it. A group of people who honor it. A group of people who don't pass across the bridge going, huh, Arlen D. Williams. Bet he was a politician. I wonder if he paid for the bridge. Why are we talking about Arlen D. Williams? 
because there are five people who lived because he chose to die. And I'll tell you in this place today, there's about 350 people that are alive because he chose to die. And I think to the glory of God the Father, the name of Jesus Christ should be lifted up. And I believe every one of us should understand the greatness of Jesus, the service he gave us. And if he asked us to suffer for his cause, what should we do, church? Suffer. And if he asked us to preach the good news of the kingdom, church, what should we do? And he asked us to repent of our sins and turn to his holiness as our only means of escape. What should we do, church? To Jesus Christ, may his name be exalted. May the greater the sacrifice mean the greater his glory, not ours. You want to be great? Hide behind Jesus. It's the only thing great you'll ever hold on to the rest of your life. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.